This morning, we're going to be doing quite a bit of review uh, in our adventure of God's Word as it concerns the saga of Joseph, a favorite son of Jacob. And uh, it's quite a bit of a review because I think we really need to be reminded of that over and over again of Scripture because we have a tendency to forget, don't we, from week to week. Many of us can't tell us what took place last week. So in verse 1, remember of, of chapter 37, it tells us that Jacob now, Joseph's father, is now living in Canaan. The very area where his father Isaac was from, but they're still there as aliens, the alien residents. They haven't obtained the land yet. And the biblical account we're going to be studying this morning is one of theological narrative, but it's also along with heroic literature. And it gives us much instruction then, and it challenges us as we seriously will engage it and try to apply it to our own family situations. To bring us up to speed, though, remember Jacob? He spent 21 to 25 years at Horeb, working for Laban. Jacob, Joseph's father, remember, had two wives, one from deceit of Laban, his father-in-law, which was Leah, along with her maidservant, Zilpah, and the other wife was Rachel, along with her maidservant, Bilhah, whom Jacob loved very dearly. He loved Rachel. Leah, however, became the first wife to bear children, and she gave Jacob six sons. It was Reuben, the firstborn son, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. And then she also gives Joseph one daughter, Dinah. Rachel, though, because of wanting children so badly, especially after Leah gives Jacob four children right away, and Rachel then, desperate to have children, gives Jacob then her maidservant, Bilhah as a concubine wife, and then Bilhah gives Jacob two more sons, Dan and Nephtali. Now it's thought after this, 20 years later now, that Leah now thinks she's beyond childbirth. But she also wants to give Jacob more sons, and so she gives him Zilpah to Jacob as a maidservant wife, and then she gives Jacob two more sons, Gad and Asher. Leah, though, however, finds that she wasn't beyond childbirth and has two more sons, Ishkar and Zebulun. And then God does an amazing thing. He opens Rachel's womb, and she has her firstborn son, Joseph. And Jacob then, after leaving Laban, after he's wrestled with God, after he's met his brother Esau, he goes to Shechem, and he purchases some land there. And he stays there for about 13 years until the incident of rape of Dinah, his only daughter, occurs by Shechem, the son of Horam. And then Jacob does kind of a foolish thing. He allows an agreement to be made with Shechem, allowing the Shechemites to intermarry with their daughters. And then without the knowledge of, of Jacob, his two sons, Simeon and Levi, devised a plan that all the male Shechemites agreed to. They agreed to be circumcised. And then on the third day, while they're still in pain over that, 
the two sons kill them all. They kill them all, and the eight other sons join then in plundering everything they had. Well, this is where the riff actually begins, I believe, with the ten brothers over the inaction of their father. He did nothing. And his reaction to their act of avenging the rape of their sister Dinah. And then God tells Jacob, it's time to leave Shechem. And sometime then, earlier during this whole process, God has allowed Rachel to become pregnant. And on the way then to Bethel, she starts having severe labor pains. And she gives birth then to Benjamin, Jacob's 12th son. But she dies in giving childbirth and is buried along the way. The gang finally makes it down to Hebron, where we find them this morning, in the land of Canaan. And it's very near where Jacob's father Isaac lived. In fact, some commentators still think that Isaac was not dead at this time. In fact, that he may have been able to even see all of his grandchildren. And so from the beginning of this family, we see that it's been continually one of deceit and lying and cheating. And yet God, think about this, and yet God is chosen to use the generations of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to accomplish his purposes in preserving the nation. And from the tribe of Judah then will come our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who comes to save the likes of even you and me today. However, as we study his life, there are going to be some very important lessons for each of us to learn. As men of your family, as wives of your husband, as the children maybe of your own father who's still alive, that we need to be reminded of, and then we need to strive to try and avoid what they did. Because as Ecclesiastes 1.9 says, that which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. And so we can see this family of Joseph's, it has some problems, doesn't it? They're all demonstrating some of the important traits that even reveal the hearts of us here today. All our hearts, Scripture tells us, are wicked, just the same as theirs. As Jeremiah 17, 9 states, and we're going to see that today, as we will dive into, Joseph, this is your life. Jacob now, as I said before, is living in Hebron. It appears at first glance that everything seems to be okay now. He has three wives left. Rachel has passed away, and he has 12 sons. Most of them have grown up by now. Many have married and have children. But ever since Rachel had died, Jacob, it seems, to have forgotten to take care of his family relationships with his children. That is, all except for Joseph and Benjamin. But especially Joseph. Jacob favors Joseph more than all the others. And he demonstrated that to him by giving him gifts to Joseph. Joseph, the son of Jacob and Rachel, he's now at the age of 17. He's living in the land of Canaan with his ten half-brothers, one full brother and at least one half-sister. Joseph was Rachel's firstborn, and that's important to remember. And Jacob's eleventh son. 
Of all the sons, though, Joseph was preferred by his father, who gave him this gift we saw in previous studies, this gift of a long coat of many colors. Now, a family like this, we know would have been chaotic, to say the least. The trouble, though, has been brewing from a long time back. A long time back, it has not been forgotten, and it has not been forgiven. Remember back in Genesis 34, verse 30, when Jacob had learned what his two sons had done in Shechem, how they had killed all the Shechemites? <laughs> and he said to them, after they did that, he said to them, You have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land. And since I'm few in number, they're going to gather themselves together against me and kill me. So Joseph, 17 years now, the tensions are running extremely high, and they're about to come to a head. It's a sad story we're reading this morning, but it's a beautiful one also. It's one about Joseph and how God's going to work through the everyday events of his life and his father's life and the 12 sons, or and the 11 sons. We'll see no miracles this morning, but we'll begin to see how God's sovereignty will use ordinary means, all the events in Joseph's life, and he will direct them for their appointed purpose according to his will, just as he still does in the lives of everyone here today. He accomplishes what he has determined for us for good. So let's begin our journey this morning together by revisiting the first four verses of chapter 37, just to get us up to the speed and the flow of things, as Rod taught us last week. So will you open your Bibles to Genesis 37, and let's reread these first four verses then, once again, as the Scripture is relating to understanding what the Lord is revealing us through Joseph, the favored son. Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. These are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock along with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a very colored tunic. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his other brothers, and so they hated him, and they could not speak to him on friendly terms. So right away in these first four verses, we're told where they're living. As I said before, they're living in the land of Canaan, most likely Hebrew, Hebron. Rather. The New King James says it was where father, Jacob's father was a stranger. And MacArthur adds to that, says, yes, they're in the land, the promised land, but they've not yet entered into the possession of their inheritance. So we find that during these 11 years, that Joseph has not only become the favored son, but that he is loved more than any of the others. And the other sons knew it. They knew it from the actions of Jacob, and they were demonstrated to them by giving Joseph this coat of many colors. But what's the reason? What's the reason why Joseph... Why Jacob gave Joseph this coat of many cousins. It's not really specifically stated here, but there are several theories. And they deal with the birthright, just as Rod spoke of last week. And we need to remember this, that people in the ancient culture, 
attached great value to the eldest son. They assigned him distinct benefits and obligations. The firstborn male was important because it was believed that he represented the prime of their human strength and the vitality. We see that in Genesis 49 and in Psalm 78. The firstborn was considered the opener of the womb. And as a result, then, the firstborn's birthright involved a double portion of the household estate and the leadership of the family. And you can even refer that kind of like to Christ when, when his father died. He became the leader of the family. In cases, though, where a husband might have more than one wife, such as Jacob, the birthright always, and strictly remember this, always went to the firstborn son of the father and could not be awarded to the son of a favorite wife without proper justification. We see that in Deuteronomy 21. Or also if the firstborn son's mother was a concubine, could not have the birthright. We see that also in Genesis 21 and Judges 11. But we did find, we did find out that the firstborn could sell his birthrights, couldn't he? Just as Esau did to Jacob in Genesis 25. So one theory, and I stress this is strictly a theory, a speculation is that the coat of many colors represented Joseph's birthright and his inheritance. As the favored son, Joseph then would have been entitled to a double portion of his father's inheritance. And so the coat or the tunic symbolized the privilege, the power that Joseph held as a favored son. But you're saying, well, wait a minute. I thought you just said that the firstborn son of the father held the legal right, the birthright. And that is true. Leah's son, however, was Reuben. He was the firstborn, remember, on that chart. But he lost his birthright. Do you remember why? It was because Reuben defied, defiled his, brother's, or his father's bed by having sexual relations with Bilhah his father's concubine wife. Therefore, Reuben's birthright was taken away from him and given, as we'll see later in our study, to the sons of Joseph, which would have been Ephraim and Manasseh, which we'll study, as I said, later. Well, this is, there's not a lot of scripture here to back this up. As I said, it's just speculation. And what we're going to learn through our study, though, is that Joseph will go on to become not only a dreamer, but one who could interpret dreams. And he would also have a prophetic dreams that revealed God's plan for his life, and he will become the protector, the preserver for his people. And so the coat may have actually signified special anointing and blessing that God has placed on Joseph's life. We just don't know that for sure yet. However, as Rod spoke about in the first four verses last week, we learn that Joseph tells his father a bad report regarding Dan and Naphtali and Gad and Asher. They're the sons of Jacob's secondary wives, remember? <laughs> and he, Joseph had been with them as they had been shepherding the flock. And we don't know what that bad report was, but it appears that Joseph, as Rod said, was spoiled, arrogant brat. And as Rod said, we would probably have called him a spoiled tattletale. Now, these brothers, they already knew, they already knew they were secondary additions in regard to Jacob's affections because they had witnessed the hard feelings between Jacob and the sons of Leah. 
and his disregard for their sister Dinah, as was seen in Genesis 34. And so they must have felt that for them, as the sons of the maid's wives, that there was little affection from Jacob, and they resented it. So they would naturally have had little regard for Joseph, the son of Jacob's favorite wife. And so these brothers, they could definitely tell Joseph was his father's pet. I mean, after all, did Jacob make any of the others a multicolored tunic? Did he give them any of them special treatments or gifts? No, not at least, we're not at least told that. And so they became envious, and it causes a rift between them, causing them to hate Joseph. And as a result, then, they says they were even unable to speak to him on friendly terms. Boy, what a close-knit family. Really close, isn't it? I mean, they're all getting along so well. I mean, the love they had for their father and he for them was quite evident, wasn't it? Well, not so much, was it? It definitely wasn't seen. And also it appears there's not much love shown towards Joseph from his brothers. In fact, it says they hate Joseph. Let me ask you, have you, any of you ever had situations similar to this uh, in your families? Maybe not to the extent of, of hating each other, but definitely your children just don't get along. You know, it's really quite common, isn't it, in families? Many times children have disagreements. And that's usually over silly things. And I'm not sure if, if not most of us, many of us, have had disagreements with our own sisters or brothers. And I pray that it wasn't to the point of hatred there either, that you worked it out, that you forgave each other, and that you continued to love each other. It doesn't matter whether it's brother, sister, mom and dad, sisters, whatever. We need to work those times out. Work them out. As parents... When our children are having these problems, then we kind of have a sixth sense, don't we, about it? It's kind of like when these things are happening, we kind of know about it. And we want to do everything possible to develop a restoration and a forgiveness between our children. But it appears here that Joseph's brothers, they don't even want to be around him. In fact, they hate being around him because they don't know what he's going to come back and tell their father. And their father is clueless at least it seems that way. Joseph remembers a kid. He's 17 years old, hardly dry between the ears, as we would say. But it does show us a couple of things. One, his father is, Joseph is loved by his father in verse 3. But it also tells us that Joseph is loathed by his brothers. He's hated by them. But in verse 4, why would you take it out on Joseph? Why would they do that? Joseph hadn't asked for this special treatment. In verse 4, when it says they could not speak to him on friendly terms, you could also read into that it may have meant that they were not able to speak with their father, Jacob, regarding his doting over Joseph with such a beautiful robe and coat. In fact, remember how I brought up the story of Dinah earlier? In Genesis 34, it says, regarding their sister Dinah, how they took it upon themselves, these two boys, to revenge her being raped by the, and that Jacob was unhappy with them because they did that. And they said to Jacob, after he had rebuked them for avenging her honor, they said, should he treat our sister as a harlot? 
you see kind of here an animosity beginning, even back then, to develop towards Jacob because of how he had treated his only daughter in this tragedy. Let me ask you, how do you think you would have handled that situation? Should Jacob have just ignored it? Or should he have set them all down and had a, a talk about this and prayer time and maybe admitting that he had handled it incorrectly, admitting to his mistake, asking them for forgiveness, but also explaining to them that what they did was just as bad as what Shechem had done to Dinah. Asking God, they all needed to ask God for forgiveness and repentance. And so far in our narrative, everything Joseph seems to have done and what he has received has served only to alienate him from his brothers, hasn't it? But Joseph isn't entirely innocent either, as we learned last week. In fact, going back to the innocent of the bad report, as Rod spoke about, that Ken Hughes says, Joseph, remember what he called him? A good boy sinner. For when we read the text, though, we seem to think that Joseph did nothing wrong in bringing this report to Jacob. Jacob probably wanted to know. However, as Kent Hughes says in his commentary that the word report in the Hebrew means is deba, D-I-B-B-A, and it is always, always used in the rest of Scripture in the negative sense of an untrue report. And here it is even qualified, he says in Scripture, by the adjective of ra, R-A-A which stands for evil. So it's an evil report. Hughes says in his commentary that this report may have been mostly true, but not completely true due to exaggeration or inaccuracies. As a father, do you get that? Have you ever had that happen with your children? Or maybe you do it yourself sometimes. We want to exaggerate just a little bit regarding something that so they really get excited about it? Or maybe someone's trying to hide something from you, and so they exaggerate a little bit. You know, Jacob himself was a deceiver, wasn't he? He lied. It's, maybe it's like father, like son. Or that old saying that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. But think about this. What is exaggeration? What is fabrication? It's just adding a little bit to the story to make something more than what it really is, isn't it? We want to call it today what? A little white lie. It's just a little white lie. But folks, it's a lie. It's still a lie. Let me give you a situation. Let's say you're at home with your children. The phone rings and your child happens to pick up the phone. And it's for you as the father. And when your child looks over at you, you're going, no way. Indicating you're not here. You don't want to talk. What have you just demonstrated to your children? That we're liars, just like Joseph or Jacob. And I don't know about you, but it seems to me today that people think it's okay to lie. And, you know, as Christians, we need to be very alert in what we say so that we don't exaggerate, because it is a lie. In fact, in the book called The Day America Told the Truth by authors James Patterson and Peter Kim, they revealed in their book 
that 91%, 91% of Americans lie on a daily basis. Whew, shame on us. You know, God hates lying. Proverbs 6 lists seven things that God hates. And it's worth noting that two of them refer to dishonesty. There are six things the Lord hates. He says, no, seven things he detests. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that kill the innocent, a heart that plots evil, feet that race to do wrong, a false witness who pours out lies, a person who sows discord in a family. Folks, in our passage this morning, we're dealing with a lot of those well, let's continue then by reading verses 5 through 7 as we begin our lesson about Joseph's first dream. Verse 5 says, Then Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Please listen to this dream which I have had. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf rose up and also stood erect. And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. <laughs> Does it seem to you here that Joseph seems just a little bit naive, a little bit boastful? And some might even say, kind of acts a little stupid here. What in the world's he thinking of telling his brothers this dream? Joseph, we know, was far from being perfect, though. In fact, you could say he was boastful, almost insisting here that his brothers will listen to him. Well, let me ask you, how would you react if you'd been in their shoes? <laughs> how would you? You know, his, his brothers, they didn't miss the point what he's getting at here, but neither did Joseph. Joseph was compelled, it seems, insistent to tell them how, how did he think they're going to take this? Did Joseph know when or how this might become true? There's no indication of Scripture here that he does. Well, let's continue then as we learn the results of verse 8. It says, Then his brothers said to him, are you actually going to reign over us? Or are you really going to rule over us? And so they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Boy, it seems like it's going from bad to worse, doesn't it? Jealousy is rearing its ugly head. Joseph's offenses towards his brothers, they, they grow larger each time he opens his mouth and he tells them of his dreams. And when you read this, it's almost like you want to cry out to Joseph, Shut up! Hmm. You can almost come to the conclusion here that Joseph is so full of himself that he simply cannot stop. You ever been around someone like that who just can't stop talking about themselves? Doesn't it just drive you crazy? It sounds like that's the condition we're finding Joseph is at this particular time in his life. Let's continue reading then, verses 9 through 11, as Joseph will have a second dream regarding the whole family. Verse 9, Now he had still another dream, and he related it to his brothers and said, Lo, I have had still another dream, and behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. He related it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come and to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Let me ask you this morning, how many of you dream here? You ever had dreams? Yeah, most of us have at one time or another, haven't we? Do you, do you always remember your dreams? 
Sometimes, sometimes not. Do they oftentimes, though, seem as though they don't really make any sense? <laughs> yeah. Well, as we go through this narrative, we're going to find that all of Joseph's dreams come in pairs. Why? Why do they come in pairs? The commentators say it's because the pairing of the dreams from God mean the certainty of their fulfillment. Now, later, as Joseph becomes great in, the, as in his position where he's going to be, he starts interpreting dreams. And he says in Genesis 41, verse 32, Now as for the repeating of the dream to Pharaoh twice, it means the matter is determined by God, and God will quickly bring it about. And so this is now his second dream regarding the same outcome, which has sealed the matter, it appears. It will happen, but no one knows when, yet not even Joseph. In this dream, though, we see added grandeur of the sun, the moon, the 11 stars, and they're all bowing down to Joseph. And once again, Joseph, he just can't contain himself. He reveals this dream not only to his brothers, but also to his father, Jacob. And when Jacob hears it, it's just too much to hear from even his favorite son. <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't have to have someone interpret it for him. They knew it was speaking, what it was speaking of. But there's a vast difference we see here between how his father reacted and how his brothers react. Jacob rebuked Joseph. He asks Joseph if his mother, himself, and his brothers are to come down and bow down to the earth before you. But do you see an inkling here of any hatred by Jacob towards Joseph? No. Joseph, we're told, actually knew he did not know what it meant. But I thought it interesting here what the reaction of the brothers was in verse 11. In verse 11 in the NSAB, it says they were jealous of him. But in the New King James Version, it says they envied him. And according to the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology, envy means this, to look with ill will toward another. It's an evil strongly condemned in both the Old and New Testaments. It is often associated, though, with jealousy, as the NSAB associated it here. But I do think the New King James rendering is a better fit here, the, the envy. Well, let's look then at what it says about Jacob in verse 11. It says, Jacob kept the saying in mind. He didn't necessarily like it, but he didn't throw it away entirely as fiction either, did he? Kind of reminds you back in Luke chapter 2, verse 19, regarding Mary and Jesus. What does it say she did? She tra Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. When it said Jacob mentions his mother, I don't believe it was Rachel he was speaking of. As she's been dead now for over 11 years. Most likely it was in reference to the entire family. Jacob's wife, still alive, Leah, Bilhah, and Zophah. And maybe this, this dream has reminded Jacob somehow of how he received his birthright from his older brother. I don't know. So Joseph's future, it appears, though, has been sealed. And we are now, well, now we look at to see how the hand of God, we can look through Scripture and see how the hand of God is the one through his providence and is in the process now of establishing the one who will be the preserver of his people Israel in the land of Egypt. 
the effect of the dreams seems to have set in motion now the events but when we look at them at first glance we look at them man this is a disaster a disaster but in reality we're seeing the work of god in his grace how he uses the ordinary means of sinful people just like us to accomplish his purpose and his goodness you know the same is true for each of us in our trials and our adversities we may not recognize how god's working in, in our lives and the events that have taken place but if we stop and wonder later on and we look back at those events, we begin to see how his hand was at work in our very own circumstances. Just look at your salvation and think about that. We may not see yet the purpose or the end of what's going on in our lives, but someday we will. Just like those in the storyline of Joseph, sometimes our lives become complicated, don't they? They become messy sometimes from our own sins, sometimes caused by the sin of those around us. And let's face it, we live in a world, don't we, dominated by sin. But we have a God of mercy, a God of grace, a God of providence who sustains the souls of those of his children. So in verse, these first 11 verses, I want to review for just a moment what we've learned about Joseph, the favored son. First, we were introduced to the reasons why Joseph was hated by his brothers because of the devotion that Joseph enjoyed. Now ask yourself this question. Do you and I do the same thing? Are we showing favoritism to any of our children? And the most important in our lives should be, number one, the Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, then, should be your wife or your spouse. As we learned last week, a good reminder for us is that our children are given to us to love them, but to point them to Christ. And they are meant then to leave. They are, this is not their home where they're living. They are to leave and start their own families. Well, dreams that Joseph experienced, we looked at those, and Joseph have had two dreams now that symbolically portray his brothers bowing down before him. And they hate the thought of it. The youngest ruling over them, it's inconceivable. How could that ever happen? Well, we've learned how the dreams of Joseph have brought hate. They've brought envy and evil towards their brother. Well, let's continue then as we look next in our study at the trip. The trip in verses 12 through 17 is Jacob now sends Joseph to check on the 12 brothers. Let's read about it. Then his brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Shechem. Israel, which is Jacob, said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send, them, send you to them. And he, that's Joseph, said to his father Jacob, I will go. And then he said to him, Go now and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock and bring word back to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And so now we see these 10 boys have gone out to pasture the flock. They're probably sheep. And because sheep eat the grass right down to almost nothing. Have you ever, 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 ever had sheep? <laughs> They're hard to raise. They eat the grass down to nothing. And as shepherds, though, they would have to have moved the flock very frequently from field to field 
in order to find enough to feed such a large flock. And so they have left. They've left Hebron now, and they're headed towards Shechem. In verse 12, it seems as if though everything's been resolved now. It's as if the past is gone. However, we're going to see here how the wheels are starting to slow down. And this darkness is an ever-approaching landscape that's going to encompass Joseph. And you can almost feel it as Joseph is about to experience life-changing circumstances. That it will change not only his life, but the entire family's life. As it soon will happen, as Joseph will be going down to Egypt to live what would seem to us a death of slavery. God's plan is in fulfillment here, even though no one could see it, not even Joseph. And so Joseph's story shows us then how God's providence works even through men's evil for our ultimate good. As the story continues, the ten older sons have gone to pasture their flocks near Shechem, in verse 12. They left from Hebron, which is 20 miles south of Jerusalem, and Shechem then is another 30 miles north of Jerusalem, making this trip of about 50 miles, approximately five days' journey from home. But the question comes to my mind, I don't know if it does yours if you're listening, why was Jacob concerned about these ten? He never showed affection for them. Why was he concerned? Well, it may have been because of the recent history, remember, of Simeon and Levi's bloody massacre of the Shechemites regarding their sister Dinah. And so if that's on his mind, then it meant Jacob, maybe he really did have just a little bit of affection for his other sons, and he's concerned for them. Or maybe he's just afraid of losing his flock. We don't know. We're not given that information. But we do know Jacob sends his favorite son, Joseph, which is even more difficult to understand. Why would he do that? Especially if he's wearing this multicolored coat, that would have been sticking out like a sore thumb, especially as his brothers see him coming and they hate him. Although it could be said here too that Jacob and Joseph never realized the hatred that his sons had for Joseph. They may have hid it from Jacob especially when they were around him. So you get the feeling here that neither Jacob or Joseph really understands how unhappy Joseph's brothers were with him. And still, you would have thought, though, that that Jacob would have thought about the danger of sending this young son, dressed like he was, over 50 miles by himself. But evidently, it never enters his mind. Jacob then desires Joseph bring back a report on how his brothers are doing, and so he also wants to know the welfare of the flock. And it's interesting here because Joseph, we see, is agreeable, and that's a great trait that he has, isn't it? We have seen this all along, how he's willing to obey his father without grumbling, without complaining, without whining. And so Joseph then heads north on this five-day journey. Let's jump ahead now as Joseph has arrived at Shechem, but he's unable to find his brothers. Now think about that. How would he find them anyway? They didn't have cell phones. They didn't have MapQuest. They didn't have GPS. They had nothing except they're going towards Shechem. And it probably would have been very difficult. 
as there's not a particular spot or a place where shepherds go to take their sheep every time, as the shepherds would have looked for the best grazing for the sheep. So it's hard to say where they might have been. Well, let's continue reading then in verses 15 to 17 as Joseph searches. It says, A man found him, and behold, he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him, What are you looking for? He said, I'm looking for my brothers. Please tell me where they're pasturing the flock. Then the man said, They have moved from here, for I heard them say, Let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Well, Joseph has arrived at Shechem. As he begins to search for him, he's going to, from field to field, it appears here, when a man sees him searching and asks him what he's looking for, and the man tells him, uh, as Joseph asks him where my brothers are, grazing their flock, he tells them, well, I heard him say, let's go to Dotham. Now, if you would have been Joseph, you think you might have asked just a few more questions from this man? I mean, he doesn't know Joseph, and Joseph doesn't know him. You thought he would ask him just a little bit more. But Joseph responds by going after his brothers, and he does find them in Dothan, 30 miles north of Shechem. So thus ends our journey this morning, and Jeff's going to pick up next week with the treachery as it begins in verses 18 through 27. But for, here, for us here this morning, what can we take away from this? How can we use it in our walk with the Lord? Let's look first then at Jacob as a father. Jacob of the father, he was blind as how to raise a godly fancy, a family. He was insensitive to their needs. He showed favoritism. He was remiss in dealing with Dinah. What about us? How do we as parents stack up in comparison? You know, we have the scriptures. We have our entire Bible. And 2 Peter 1.3 tells us we have everything pertaining to life and godliness. We just need to learn how to use it. As parents, you know, without Christ, we don't stand a chance. And even with Christ as our Lord and Savior, you're going to find ourselves, we're going to find ourselves on our knees. And we come as beggars. We ask for guidance. We ask for forgiveness. We ask for knowledge and the grace to raise our children. And we pray that they're going to come to know Christ as their Lord and Savior. But let's look next then at Joseph. You know, Joseph, maybe, maybe you have a child in your family like him who has a tendency maybe to lie once in a while or to exaggerate. Maybe they're boastful. Maybe they think more highly of themselves than they should and they speak without considering consequences. Well, my, my admonition to us is be careful that our children don't develop the same character traits as Joseph. And don't give up. Don't give up. Look how God changed Joseph and how he used him to accomplish great things. What about the brothers? Well, obviously, they didn't obey Jacob or their God. They were full of envy, jealousy, hatred. They were willing to do, go beyond good and exert evil. But really, when you think about that, it's a picture of us, isn't it? Everyone's heart. 
There is none, Scripture tells us, who does good. Our hearts are wicked, full of sin and full of evil. As Jeremiah 17, 9 says, we don't even know our heart, only God does. And maybe that might be us here this morning, someone. And, you know, you can fool everyone around you, but you can't fool God. He knows you by name, and he's here this morning, and he's calling you, saying, come to me for rest. Repent of your sins, believe in me, and I will give you a new heart, a new life in Christ. The old will be gone, and new things will come. Well, how would you rate your family in comparison? Take a look now at this chart that I'm going to put up here of Jacob and their descendants and how God used them later on. And think about your family. You see Reuben and Simeon? Nothing. Levi, out of Levi came Aaron and Moses and Eli and Zacharias and John the Baptist. Judah, we got David and Jesus and Dan, Samson and Naphtali, Barak, and Elijah, Gad, Nephtali, and then the other three sons, nothing. Joseph, we got Joshua, and Gideon, and Samuel, and Benjamin, Paul, and Esther, and Paul. You see how God was working in this family to accomplish his purposes. You know, for our application this morning, you know, the trials that we go through may be difficult, but sometimes they're necessary to mold us into the person that God wants us to be. So ask yourselves, and I got this quote from my wife, who, and I can't think of that guy's name, Leitner? Leitner. He says, ask yourself this, do my trials make me better or do they make me bitter? Next, we need to learn to trust without questioning. You know, God is still in the process of redirecting all of our lives yet. And we sometimes want to say, why, God, why? Why are you doing this? Why are you not answering my prayers? Well, sometimes he does delay, doesn't he, in meeting our certain needs so that his greater plan for us and for others, just as he did with Joseph, might be accomplished. So be patient. God hears you. And when we trust without questioning one day, just as Joseph, we may be able to say to those who are against us, those who cause bad things to happen for us, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So therefore, and because of all that, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. You know, those dark moments in our life, just like those of Joseph, those trials will last only as long as necessary for God to accomplish his purpose in us. So remember 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, it says, Therefore do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing in us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look at the things that are seen, look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. You know, I don't know if Joseph ever sang a song, but as part of a family who were shepherds, I would think probably he did. Would you stand with me as we close this morning? I'd like to sing together, have us sing together a song that I'm sure Joseph never heard, but one that I think most of us have come to love. And the name of it is, He Will Hold Me Fast.
Those he saves are his delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight, he will hold me fast.